to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Derek Taylor. Dr. Taylor holds a THD from Duke University and is the Assistant Professor of Theology and the Director of the Emmaus Scholars Program at Whitworth University. He's also the author of a new book entitled Reading Scripture as the Church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Hermeneutic of Discipleship. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Like, right but when you, I you always say that though for every guest. It's true. I, I well, I set these out like months in advance, you know. Okay. So I'm like reading I'll, these books. I'll take that as a genuine excitement to chat with me. I wanted to just put an emphasis on long because <laughs> it has been a long time. We've been talking about this for a while. My first, I think my first couple weeks in the program here at Whitworth, I was talking to. Dr. Nieder, and he was like, have you talked to Derek Taylor? So, um, yeah, th- this is great. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, well, let's jump jump right in. How, uh, how did you discover Bonhoeffer? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I grew up in a pretty traditional American evangelical house, which meant that on the shelf in my basement, my parents had a copy of Discipleship. I guess it would have been Cost of Discipleship, like the paperback, one of those mass-produced paperback Touchstone. versions. Yeah, probably that. Yeah. So I, I, I had the sense that he was like an important person. I never like read it or knew much about him besides that he was important. Uh, I came to Whitworth actually for my theology degree back in the day, encountered him a little bit more. Actually first, though, I first really encountered Bonhoeffer um, on the, the beaches of Jamaica. Have I told you the story before? No. no. <laughs> um, okay, so Spokane, it's a beautiful place. Right now it's what, September 4th? It's like ideal outside. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the whole world. But January in Spokane is, is less than ideal. And at Whitworth we have what's called the Jan term, just one course kind of intense for the whole month of January. Mm-hmm. And I needed w- one more class, uh, three more credits to satisfy uh, this ministry minor that I was doing. I'm like, man, I don't want to be in Spokane for the winter. This is back when, like, to quote Google something was like a fairly new technology. Mm-hmm. So I just Googled um, churches, pastors, whatever, in Jamaica and came up with a list of email addresses that I was able to file together. And I just sort of blindly emailed. You were just on vacation? Well, no, I was, so I turned it into an independent study. Oh, okay. That was, that's, this is the point. I, I can, I can, turn a well, I mean, January trip into Jamaica into an independent study to get credit. But you were in Jamaica for vacation? Or no, just I was just sitting in my room in Spokane lamenting the fact oh. that January was coming. Ah, okay. And so I, I, agree, I got this one pastor in Jamaica to agree to host me and I would like preach a little bit and do some stuff with the church and blah, blah, blah. And so I proposed it to a prof who's like willing to oversee it. I, there's a few things that are bad about the history of Jamaica and stuff like that. Um, but wh- so one of the aspects of this independent study that I did in Jamaica, and I also convinced two friends to come with me. <laughs> um, I did the I did my entire degree wrong. I should yeah, just you did do it wrong. <laughs> I tell students who are on campus World in Jamaica tour. that you definitely are doing this the wrong way. <laughs> but there's like a sort of a spiritual journal exercise that I would do daily as part of it. And, and the book, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll read Cost of Discipleship mm-hmm. as. Um, and of course, this independent study in Jamaica had a lot of, you know, scare quote, research time on the beach reading. Mm-hmm. So I, as I remember vividly us on the beach reading discipleship with 
like this bucket of, of red stripe next to me. Do you know what red stripe is? Beer. It, yeah, it's yeah. like okay. Jamaican beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and like reading this Bonhoeffer guy talk about following Jesus and picking up your cross mm-hmm. and like giving away your life and the costliness of all. So it was like this deeply incongruous moment of me lounging in the sun, drinking red stripe and Bonhoeffer <laughs> talking about giving your life away. <laughs> So I kind of okay, this Bonhoeffer guy, he'll mess with you, like yeah. existentially in a deep. So I kind of, I kind of put him away, knowing that too much of him might, might like mess with my life a little bit. So he was there, uh, and then I, I stumbled into grad school by asking questions about the Bible, what the church, what the Bible is, how the church ought to be using it. Like I mentioned, I grew up in an evangelical house, so I kind of had this implied or functional biblicism. Uh, it didn't take much actual reading of the Bible to realize that biblicism doesn't really work. So I was sort of looking for a way forward. And for me, it was like not just about different interpretive habits, but actually different ways of being Christian or even to be Christian at all. And so to make a much longer story short, uh, I stumbled into this movement that's usually known as the, the theological interpretation of Scripture which at the time I, w- I was really drawn to for various reasons. Uh, this movement, uh, again here sp- speaking broadly, draws from various postmodern epistemological and, and hermeneutical sources to pave a sort of intellectually serious, or at least what seems to be an intellectually serious path beyond the, su- the supposed impasse between biblicism and historical criticism. And so for me it was a really helpful step forward in, in holding on to the Bible as something important while while leaving Biblicism behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, over time, my, my enthusiasm for this theological interpretation thing began to fade uh, spe- because of this thing that I refer to in the book as um, ecclesiocentrism. It's a term that others have used. Basically, the idea is that there's this tendency to collapse the voice and activity of God into the voice and activity of the church, which ironically parallels the, the biblicism that I left, which collapsed, collapsed divine action into these sort of static written words. Uh, so that was troubling to me for a few reasons. One was that uh, with the sort of ecclesiocentrism, issues pertaining to the church's engagement with the world tended to fall by the wayside. Like if faithfulness and faithful reading happens in the church, then any, any movement outside of the church, if it happens at all, is, is of secondary significance, which mm-hmm. means that issues pertaining to justice or liberation or mission tend to sort of get squeezed out of the picture. Uh, and then also, if you, if you so heavily accent um, tradition, narrative, language, like the church as this sort of plausibility structure, this culture that norms your thinking, uh, you quickly come up with some sort of um, feedback loop as you read scripture, some sort of like this sort of epistemic self-enclosure where uh, reading scripture ends up confirming the resources that you brought to the act of reading. Hmm. And this was around 2016, right? So there's this presidential campaign and election going on, incredibly polarizing hmm. with, uh, you know, with social media. Now we're, we're only reading the news that we want to read. Like so people are talking about these echo chambers that we're stuck within. I have a good friend who's uh, a world-class social psychologist. And I talked to him about some of this stuff about confirmation bias and possible debiasing techniques and is it possible really to ever get something out of the Bible that we didn't bring to it? Hmm. 
So that's a, that's a long way of saying that this was a perfect setup for me to encounter Bonhoeffer. Uh, I came across this beautiful quote from a, a 1932 ecumenical address in, in Gland, Switzerland, where he says to this audience that we only know how to read the Bible for ourselves. We, we, we no longer are able to read against ourselves. We can read for ourselves, but we've lost the ability to read against ourselves. Now, like this struck a chord in me, especially given all that was going on. Is it possible to read the Bible against ourselves? Uh, can there really be some sort of like a, a hermeneutic of againstness? And so this really intrigued me. Uh, and so I read Bonhoeffer more, and he says that, though, at the same time as he says things like this, and I wrote this quote down, uh, theological exposition takes scripture as the book of the church and interprets it as such, which seemed to be sort of right up the alley of theological interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that he's, he doesn't often get credit for it, but he's one of the first thinkers within the context of modern Protestant theology to advocate for this, this hermeneutical return to the church as like a locus, a space for reading. Mm-hmm. And he does so, it seems to me at least, while remaining uh, acutely aware of the danger uh, of what I would call ecclesiocentrism. Mm-hmm. So he was able to sort of walk this path that I was trying to walk. So I'm like, hey, this guy might be onto something. So wow. Bonhoeffer it was. And of course, Bonhoeffer's kind of sexy. Uh, a book on Bonhoeffer might get published. <laughs> there's, there's these amazing Bonhoeffer podcasts you can go on if you write a book on Bonhoeffer. Like, hey, it all, it all adds up. I'm going to do a Bonhoeffer project. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, here, so here we are. <laughs> it's where all the money's at. I, I will tell you. <laughs> yeah, I got Absolutely my not. I got my first like royalty check for my book, uh, like an upfront little payment. And I was like doing the math, like sarcastically, of my hourly wage that I made on this thing. <laughs> my wife did a guest preaching gig on Sunday at a church and like made significantly more. <laughs> but here we are. Yeah, I'm not sure there's money in it for uh, like unless you're um, some guy named Metaxas or something. But for, but for most of us, there's not a ton of money. In it. Hey, well, it's worthwhile in other ways. Yeah, worthwhile in other other ways. Um, so that led you to do a PhD at Duke. Um, and this book, the Reading Scripture of the Church, is your dissertation. Yeah, it's modified it. a bit and refined, uh, but yeah, it's the it's the basic structure came from the from the dissertation. Awesome. Well, yeah. I really love the book. Um, it and also I think listeners should know that I teach at Whitworth. Uh-huh. Corey is a student at Whitworth. Yes. Uh, he's not in my class, so he's he's saying that without sucking up for it. Right, for it's, it's true. It's, it's at least somewhat genuine. <laughs> no, it, it's great because I, I have a similar background, this like evangelical upbringing. Um, so, seeing how you have encountered Bonhoeffer, taken from other theologians, but still bringing in some of the things that have kind of brought me to faith, was like oh, like it was stretching in some ways and affirming in others and. It was nice to... Well, Corey, if the book helps you, it was definitely worth it. (laughs) Awesome. So in your book, you have um, four identity-defining relationships, um, how uh, the church relates to the Bible. You You have them as in relationship to the risen Christ, in relationship to its historical institutional past, in relationship to a concrete communal location, and in relationship to the world. Before I jump into these four things, um, you in each chapter you interact with theologians, with John Webster, Robert Jensen, Stanley Harawas. Um, how did you choose these theologians? Were these people who just came to mind as you were thinking through this? How that happened? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, maybe you haven't heard, but uh, a white guy writing about a bunch of white guys is really trendy these days. <laughs> so I thought, hey, this is perfect. Uh, or a white guy using a white guy, Bonhoeffer, to interact with white guys. This is this is great. Uh, well, so I kind of, th- these are people who, on my own journey, have tried to figure out what it means to be a Christian and what it means to read the Bible. They were three people who spoke very powerfully to me. And they all wrote things that were meaningful on biblical interpretation specifically. Hmm. And as you'll know, whenever you, if, if you go on to do a dissertation, like it's helpful to write about people that you f- are familiar with, and, I, and these are people that I was familiar with. And um, they, all, they all taught me really powerful things, yet the more I dove into each of them, the more I saw that there was something, I, I just felt a little bit uneasy with them. I would think that's more I wanted to say. There are certain sort of weaknesses, if you will. Hmm. That I, and then I felt like Bonhoeffer was able to speak to those. So sort of like Bonhoeffer is this voice that helps me draw together these other voices like in, in harmony. Like they on their own aren't quite doing it for me, but with Bonhoeffer together sort of makes this thing that, that at least in my mind works a little bit. Perfect. Yeah. Makes, makes great sense. Um, so we'll start with the first one. In relationship to the risen Christ, how does, how does Bonhoeffer come into this conversation and how does he help us understand how the church relates to scripture? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll just explain, I guess, a little bit what I mean by that, those four relationships. Uh, ecclesiology is a tough doctrine, in part because there are so many different images or metaphors in Scripture for the church, like some people count over 90. And so, like, what actually is the church? Hmm. We often, like, pick the metaphors or images that we like. You know, it's a, it's a body, it's a temple, it's a people. But then we end up like sort of with this sort of juggling act. We're sort of, sort of trying to juggle all these different images and metaphors at the same time. Because it's really hard to be synthetic. How can an object be both X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Uh, or A, B, and C, right? Uh, but I thought, okay, the same object being different things at once is challenging. But the same object can exist simultaneously in different identity-defining relationships. This is sort of common sense, right? Um, you, Corey, you're a spouse. You're a father, you're a son, you're a friend, mm. et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, all while being Corey. Mm. So I'm thinking, oh yeah, the church is always exists in relationship to the risen Christ, who calls it into being. But the church also always exists in relationship to its own historical institutional past. And it also always exists in relationship to a concrete place. And it always exists in relationship to the world. And these are always these are all simultaneous relationships that define the church as such and that I actually think then shape the church as a space for reading the Bible. Each of those mm-hmm. relationships carries implications for how the church reads the Bible. And as I read through people within this sort of broad movement called the theological interpretation of scripture, it seemed to me that there's a tendency to accent one of those dynamics, oftentimes at the expense of the others, mm-hmm. and like to load um hermeneutical significance on that one relationship as opposed to the others. Like, what if we tried to find a way to be synthetic and hold these all together? Hmm. Um, I say more about that in the book. I explain, I, I talk about the Emmaus Road story, where there's this, there's this moment of understanding vis-a-vis scripture, and it's often used as like a, an example of Christological knowing because it's in the kind of presence of Christ. But it's actually a pretty complex event, right? Because even though Christ is teaching them on this journey to Emmaus, like the teaching per se doesn't do anything. 
like the, 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 it must have been a masterful Bible study, right, with the risen Christ walking these many miles to Emmaus. But the new knowledge that the disciples acquire doesn't produce understanding. Mm-hmm. Understanding arises as bodies gather around a table. Understanding arises in this, in this moment of togetherness and issues in a moment of, of movement out into the world to talk about what has just happened. And of course, the disciples brought their own stories, their own institutional memory to the event. Like we had hoped he was the one to read. So like these, these four mm-hmm. dynamics, this is, this is like a quintessential or paradigmatic example in the Bible of how biblical understanding arises in this deep way. And in this paradigmatic instance, these, these, it's, it's a dense event. These, these four dynamics are sort of cohering in this one moment. So I'm like, hey, maybe we can, we can play with this. And it, it allowed me to bring in these different voices in it. It very conveniently structured the book into four parts. And so, and so here we are. <laughs> awesome. Um, but yeah, so the first part, uh, I deal with the, the Christological context, the church as the creature of the word, the creature of Arabi, to use kind of classical terminology. I begin with John Webster, who um, within recent Protestant theology is maybe the best at, a kind of, at articulating the classical Protestant view of, of what the Bible is. Right? The church is this community called into existence by Christ's addresses, highly vertical account of God's revelation, accents God's freedom, mm. uh, which then leads to that account of Christ in the church, that ecclesiology, leads to certain interpretive virtues. If this is what the church is, what does it mean to read faithfully in this church? Well, then, uh, sort of posture of receptivity, of listening, uh, this practices of unmastery, prayer, confession, repentance, like these become prime, mm-hmm. prime hermeneutical virtues if we accent the church in this sort of way. And I, I, I'm pretty drawn to that. And I think, I think Bonhoeffer would totally vibe with that dimension of Webster. And in fact, Webster sometimes uses Bonhoeffer as like a positive example of, mm-hmm. of how the Bible should function in the church. But I, I was having a, this is I was at Duke, I was having a conversation with Willie Jennings and we were talking about Webster and he just pointed out to me that, yeah, Webster is great, but like I don't see any bodies there, which is a very Willie Jennings sort of thing to say. Uh, the point being that Webster rightly stresses God's address, God's vocal nature, but fails to remember that this address, this word, is a person, right? Mm-hmm. So we get so we get a verbal God, not an embodied God. Like noose rises over soma, mind rises over body. We get inspiration at the expense of incarnation. Uh, Webster has hardcore fanboys, so if they listen to this, they might attack me or push back. But I think that's I I, I, I reread a bunch of this stuff. I think it's a I think there's fair critique there. Um, we get this sort of bodiless, disembodied, very cognitive, very mental Christianity. And so Bonhoeffer, I think, is really helpful here because he agrees with Webster. Yes, it's a Christological event. This church is the creature of the word, but Revelation is not vocal in the in the way that you and I speak. Revelation mm-hmm. is a person, mm-hmm. and that 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 claim that revelation is a person I think is really important right God speaks a particular sort of word a word that is a person so Jesus of Nazareth his his fleshly bodily existence is, is not some sort of like concealing exterior vehicle within which we find hidden some spiritual or immaterial truth he's not like just some communication medium to, to like span this divide between God and us to give us like new knowledge mm-hmm. like his body his bodily life is the thing like he is the truth in all the dimensions of, of what it means for him to be a person. So then when the, when the word initially confronts the disciples, as, as we read in the Gospels, the, the result is not that they know new things. Uh, the result is that they put down their nets and follow. 
they change the location of their bodies, they change their community, they change their economic practices, they change their life. And sure, along the way, certain forms of knowledge may accrue, but the point is not what happens, or at least first and foremost, the point is not what happens to their brains, the point is what happens to them, to their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jesus says to them, put down your nets before he later says to them, okay, now who do you say that I am? Um, what, so. Whatever the word is doing, it's not just cognitive. It's not just giving us new intellectual, you know, stuff. So this claim, if we take that claim seriously, which I think Bonhoeffer does, it sort of reorients our entire approach to the Bible. Truth is a person. Truth is not a proposition or a statement or a principle or a text or an idea. Uh, truth is a person. And that this tension between truth as idea and abstraction versus truth as person and concretion, that that is one of the core animating claims, I think, that runs throughout all of Bonhoeffer's writing. Mm-hmm. Right, because ideas can be controlled and manipulated and cataloged, right? But but persons can't, just at least divine persons can't. <laughs> so when we read scripture in search of ideas or propositions, right, or true doctrines, or uh, we quickly become master, and then we quickly then read for ourselves, as Bonhoeffer says. But if it were possible, you know, to read in search of a person, that would at least hold open the possibility of reading against ourselves. And this is where I find Bonhoeffer uh, especially fascinating. He seems to believe that we can like understand the text rightly, but still not understand it in the, in the, in the deep, correct sort of way. Right? We can properly excavate the ideas from the text, but have not yet encountered the person within the text, mm-hmm. and our interpretation remains an abstraction. So he says things like, uh, the words are correct, but they have no weight. Yeah. Or more famously, he says, we've heard the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps we have understood it. But who has heard it correctly? Like, just sit with that sentence for a yeah. while. Like, that's, we have heard it, but you haven't heard it correctly. So, the, if you play with this seriously, he's, he's like almost like saying semantic truth can be false. A true statement, a true idea may yet, may, may, may utterly fail to conform to reality. So for Christians, then, reading scripture can't simply be trying to excavate ideas from the text. It can't simply be trying to excavate meaning, which is how I've been taught to read the Bible most of my life. It must be something more like reading for the sake of encountering truth and being pulled along into truth, or at least being, you know, being pulled along into walking the way of Jesus. So when we read scripture, we're not simply asking, what does this text mean? Um, in and of itself, this question is abstract. Yeah. We're asking... Um, who is Jesus Christ for us today? Sounds like a much more um, clear and simpler version of act and being. <laughs> this idea of revelation as a person, and uh, you have a section in there about the theology of, of the child, is how, how we. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in act, he begin, in act and being at the beginning, he talks about how um, revelation must yield an epistemology of its own. Mm-hmm. He kind of winds his way through options that he sort of half-heartedly rejects or agrees with. And he finally comes to the end where he has this sort of like eschatological possibility of the child. Like this, if, there, if, if revelation, if this really is a person confronting us, what does it mean to know? Um, and I, yeah, I find that to be beautiful. I, don't, I mean, not simple, definitely challenging, exactly. paradoxical, but I, I mean, uh, if Jesus Christ really is the risen Lord who confronts us, it seems to be that's, that's the way we should think about this. <laughs> that's so awesome. Um, all right, let's move on to uh, the second one. In relation to its historical institutional past, how does Bonhoeffer help us understand these, and where do we see that? Yeah, um, 
right? So the like the distinctly Protestant account of, uh, of the creature of the word often stands in some tension with this sort of seemingly Catholic account of the historical institution. And so um, these first two sections, in a sense, can seem to stand in tension. I begin talking with Robert Jensen, who I take to be uh, within recent decades, one of the clearest voices articulating the hermeneutical significance of the institution. And we don't need to get into the, to, to the, the nitty gritty of Jensen. I think he's fascinating and definitely worth reading. But he makes really important claims um, about, the, about, you know, outside the church, this thing we call the Bible doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are fragments and texts but if we bring these fragments together into complete texts and we put these texts into testaments and these testaments into a canon, like that thing only exists within the community for which and by which um, it, it came together. And so then to read something other than the canon is to, is to sort of read as, in, in, a, in a fundamentally non-Christian manner, which means then to read faithfully is to read as this community. And so practices that habituate you within the community he refers to these sometimes as, as, as touchstones of continuity. Uh, main, these practices that maintain the identity of the community uh, are deeply hermeneutical practices because they give you the lens to approach the text rightly. So to read faithfully, Jensen would have a see, is to read from this sort of traditioned posture. Um, so again, we see how you accent ecclesiology, Jensen is very different from Webster, how you accent ecclesiology leads directly to certain interpretive virtues and habits. Hmm. And they can seem to stand at odds. And I think one of the values of Bonhoeffer is that he can, he sort of stands in the middle. And he, I think he's, he is able to hold on to both of these tendencies. One of the dangers in that highly historical institutional approach is that ecclesiocentrism that I mentioned at the beginning. So Jensen, I wrote down this quote, he says things like this, uh, the spirit, or the, the, uh, he says, the Bible is the spirit's book who may do with it what he will. And the church as his prophet knows what that is. It's a pretty bold claim. Uh, if we already know what the Spirit is going to do with this book, why do we need the Spirit or the book? If we know what the Spirit is going to say, why does the Spirit need to say it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's almost like Spirit is just a fancy term that really means communal consciousness yeah. or institutional memory. So it's like this is a collapsing of God's voice into the voice of the church. Uh, I think Bonhoeffer helps us avoid that because with Jensen, he, he, they're actually both Lutheran, right? Bonhoeffer is more distinctly Lutheran than Jensen, but they're both Lutheran. They both have a high view of the church as the body of Christ. They have a high view of tradition. So Bonhoeffer says things like, between us and the Bible stands the church with its history. Um, as Christians, we don't have access to the Bible that bypasses the church history. Our access is always through this history. But at the same time, Bonhoeffer accents Christ's singularity and Christ's freedom. Like Christ, of course, is the body and is with God, but Christ also walks ahead of the church. He can't be collapsed into it. There's this unity and also this difference, what I call uh, the sort of fundamental asymmetry. And so in Bonhoeffer then, we see, like a, it's like a Christologically redefined account of historical institutional practices. Uh, so in other words, in other words he, he holds together the creature of Verbi and the institution, precisely as the creature of Christ's address, this community has a social history. Mm-hmm. And this social history is significant, and, and becoming, in some sense, tradition into the church is, is significant, but not as an end in itself, which it can become in highly ecclesiocentric forms of theology. Being traditioned is penultimate. It, it, it equips you to um, discern Christ's address. It's, it's like um, developing the ears to hear. So whereas 
someone like Jensen might say, we know what the Spirit will say. Bonhoeffer said, yeah, we don't know what Christ will say. Christ is free to surprise us, but we know who Christ is. Mm. So it's a more chastened confidence. Uh, or, you know, in, in John's language, the sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice. Uh, so entering into the tradition is sort of like attuning ourselves to the frequency of Christ's dialect. We don't know what he's going to say. He can still surprise us. He can still catch us off guard. He's still free to do what he will do. But we're ready to hear it. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk about James Cohn in that section. James Cohn in, in God of the Oppressed talks about this dialectic, this tension between Christ's wasness and his isness. And I love the way he puts it. Like, Christ was Christ, but who is Christ? Like, it's the same person, but who is he for us today? His isness can't lose his wasness, but his wasness in and of itself doesn't deliver his contemporaneity. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, being traditioned into the church for Bonhoeffer is of utmost importance, but it's penultimate. It makes you susceptible to hearing Christ's address and being called along, pulled along into following after him. Wow. I think that's the the area of the book that I thought, um, in my experience, in evangelical churches, out of the four, this is probably where it's missed the most. I don't. I don't yeah. recall ever growing up or going to say the creeds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, and this is this is. I mean, it's fairly common for evangelicals to discover. I mean, I'm, I teach theology to college students. I see this all the time. They love the Bible. They discover the creeds, and they get sort of swept away into creedal liturgical forms of Christianity because it, it provides sort of like what I was saying at the beginning, sort of intellectually satisfying way to move beyond biblicism. Yeah, and that's great. That's cool. Um, I think there's great value in being in tradition, but as I said, uh, it, we have to situate tradition in relation to the risen Christ, mm -hmm. or else it becomes a thing in itself, and we've missed the point. Absolutely. Yeah. The third one you have here is um, a concrete communal location. Yeah. You see lots of that in life together, huh? Right. I mean, this is this is life together is the greatest example. I mean, volume 14, all of his Finkenwalde experiment is like the greatest example of how he tries to flesh this out, right? So in the Emmaus Road story, to go back to my sort of catalyzing biblical idea here, mm -hmm. it's when people gather around a table, friends and a stranger, come shoulder to shoulder around a table to share food. Like this is the moment in which understanding happens. Like it's densely communal. And so um, if this is the case, I I, I call these practices of togetherness. I, I work with Howard Ross a little bit. We don't need to talk too much about him. I think he does a great job of articulating uh, interpretation as a social practice. But if we really do encounter Christ through each other, if God uses the mouth of humans as God's own mouthpiece, that's, that's a startling claim, which means that an array of these concrete practices of together that allow us to bear the presence of others that's a deeply theological and deeply hermeneutical thing. So practices of like patience, nonviolence, forgiveness, uh, these things uh, can seem abstract and ideal, but they're actually, if God's gonna speak to this community, you have to hear. So Bonhoeffer has both a theory of revelation and what I call a practice of revelation. Uh, if Christ speaks, then we must become an addressable community a community fit to bear Christ's address. And so when you read through Life Together and you read through um, volume 14 and when you read about some of his students, their reflections, like it's like deeply and uncomfortably programmatic and specific. You know, at times it's uncomfortable, right? But these, these practices like, hey, like let's play together. Let's, let's play games and have fun. 
Let's like talk about contemporary issues. Let's eat together. Let's, let's, let's be hospitable and welcome guests. Let's of course pray and study scripture and learn together. You know, each at Fink and Valda, each student had to go on, on one long walk with every other student, even the ones he didn't like, right? These, if Christ speaks to a community, and if a community is trying to attempt to bear that address, and these practices are not secondary to reading the Bible faithfully, but they're actually sort of things that we need to do if we're going to hear uh, Christ address us through this text. So he believes that Revelation is a practice, it's an activity, these practices of together then function as like a corollary to Christ's speech. They are how we hear Christ in and through the Bible. Hmm. Well, it makes uh, it makes going to church on on a Sunday morning way more exciting. <laughs> the well, idea that we we all collectively are coming together to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, it depends what church you go to. I mean, like when you read. Bonhoeffer can, can come across as very idealistic. Yeah. And it, it places a question mark over a lot of what we call like church, like Sunday morning gathering. Yeah. Because um, usually for me, I can sit in a pew and I don't even know the names of the people next to me. Sure. Much less do I listen to them. Definitely. Much less do I really genuinely forgive them. Uh, I think Bonhoeffer would have some serious problems with that, which is why as he gets to Finkenwald and as he moves to, in, into his prison writings, like he, he began to rethink what it might actually mean to be the church, to look like the church. Mm. And so something more communal, something more concrete, I think, I think he, he invites us to think that way. So I, think I, I direct the Emmaus Scholars Program here at Whitworth, which is uh, an intentional community that is patterned after or inspired by life together. Students live together for a year. They commit to a rhythm of spiritual practices, of eating together, of getting to know each other, et cetera, et cetera, which is like, hey, if, if we're really going to be a community of Christ, like these are the things we should be doing. So it's like my experiment to see if I can take Bonhoeffer seriously. <laughs> but it's challenging because it's easy to be, to, to kind of isolate ourselves within our safe little bubbles and like not actually know the person sitting next to us in the pew. Especially during COVID. Right. Yeah, that's a whole different question. But like, even just generally, like if, if Christ really is going to yeah. speak to me through brothers and sisters, like I should like listen to them. Yeah. Like I should maybe know them. Um, that, which takes intentionality, takes uncomfortable things, takes practice takes giving work. up of your time yeah it takes work um, not as like so a works-based means of earning revelation but like as a practical corollary yeah. of Christ's address yeah wow and the last one you have uh, that this this community that is together and knows each other doesn't just stay together it goes to, <laughs> together it seems like um, what the relationship to the world of the church uh, how does Bonhoeffer help us understand that? yeah I mean there's it, 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 like there's never a church that doesn't somehow exist in relationship to the world. Like when you read so Luke 24, to come back to that, right, These the, the, there's three stories that make up that chapter. The woman at the tomb encounter Christ and they go to tell. Mm -hmm. These two were disciples on the road to Emmaus encounter Christ and they immediately go to tell. And then the last one, he comes to the eleven and says, hey, go out there and tell people. It's like this, it's always the encounter with Christ encounter with the community and the movement into the world like these things can't be neatly teased apart like this is, this is sort of one thing that the church is so like my, my general sense reading around the theological interpretation of scripture is that um, while it regularly accents the the hermeneutical importance of ecclesial practices mission is not always or maybe even rarely considered to be one of those practices so we get the sort of in versus out tension I mentioned mm -hmm. if if, if your methodological presupposition is that interpretation happens in the church, then any movement outside of the church 
um, it at best lacks hermeneutical significance, or at worst, this doesn't even happen. Mm. Uh, so we see, right, this idea that, or even in some cases, that like the world as a category falls from view, which seems to me to be wrong in a lot of ways. Uh, it seems to me that the, like the movement and encounter inherent in missionary activity is actually in part how the church comes to see. It's not like a secondary byproduct that we do after we come to understand. It's actually, the, the movement is part of the understanding itself. And so, like, right, the, those first disciples, they come to understand the gospel more fully, not when Christ says, hey, go, but actually when they encounter others along the way. It's when they encounter these Gentiles. And they can't, like, like, this actual movement and encounter is what expands their theological imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mission must have some epistemic and thus some hermeneutical uh, significance. Uh, so I deal with two tendencies in, the, in that last section, which I have kind of rather clunkily called the, the culturalist and, and the secularist options. Be- behind this term culturalist is um, Lynn Beck's famous cultural linguistic account of theology, right? The culture of the church norms the hermeneutical process. So this emphasis falls on, on policing the borders to maintain cultural normativity, right? The right language, the right doctrine, the right practices. And then so reading outcomes, interpretive outcomes, must then in some sense conform or at least be normed by cultural patterns. Which means, as I just said, that that, that hermeneutical faithfulness and missionary movement are at best sequentially ordered, or at worst, mission just falls from view. Mm -hmm. Um, The other, uh, the secularist, is a clunky way to refer to the opposite tendency. And Bonhoeffer uses this language of secular when he addresses what he sees in the Anglo-Saxon church that thinks it can like fanatically reform the world and build the kingdom and he uses it in New York when he's talking about the sort of white liberal theology he encounters which is heavily weighted towards social practice which he I think learns from and really appreciates mm-hmm. but which lacks um, a Christological foundation so in this in this option mission becomes very important it becomes of utmost important uh, but in moving into the world it's sort of the opposite thing there's this movement away from the church. So as with the culturalist option, there's this sort of sequential ordering between church and mission, but now with the emphasis placed on mission. So just as in extreme cases in the culturalist option, the world might fall from view. In extreme cases in the secularist option, uh, the church might fall from view. Like you, you get mission without a church. And then the irony, and this is where Bonhoeffer becomes helpful for me. He didn't talk a lot about mission. He grew up in the context of Christendom. Uh, this is not a common theme that he deals with, but he's got a pretty powerful theology of the world, and I think this is sort of undergirding this. So the, the irony is that I think the culturalist and the secularist option make the same core mistakes. For one, they separate church and world into these sort of two distinct things, almost like two ontologically distinct things. To be in one is not to be in the other. And the, the, the difference mm-hmm. is which one do you accent as being important. Uh, they, what I call, they, they objectify the gospel, either within a sort of normative cultural pattern of the church, on the one hand, or within some sort of normative vision of idealized society. But in both cases, then the gospel is, or at least could become, like fully present, mm-hmm. fully at hand in church or in society. And when you do that, when you divide church and world, and when you objectify the gospel, you place tons of importance on the church as a missionary agency. Uh, the church is that link between gospel and world. So the church bears this huge burden to bear the gospel to the world, either by bringing people into the culture of the church with the culturalists or by going out and making the world a better place mm. for the sake. Like, it's a pretty huge burden placed upon the church. And Bonhoeffer, 
cuts right through these mistakes uh, by refusing to make an ontological distinction between church and world. And this is where ethics is, is, I think, incredibly important and incredibly powerful. Like, we're dealing with one reality here, namely the reality of that which is reconciled to God in Christ. Like, this is one thing. So the church, then, is not unique in that it's like a unique substance or a unique culture. It's not ontologically unique in any sort of sense. It, its uniqueness lies in the simple fact that it knows it's been reconciled to God in Christ and that it, it attempts, however half-heartedly and falteringly, to, to live into and witness to that reality. Right, so if, if, there's, if there's no ontological distinction between church and world, because all of reality is reconciled to God and, God and Christ, then the church no longer has to be the link between Christ and the world. It, it's relieved of that burden. Um, so the church then does not mediate Christ to the world. And in fact, it's the opposite. Christ mediates the church to the world. And that realization, which flows from Bonhoeffer's thinking about the world reconciled to God and Christ, that's profoundly liberating and opens up a whole array of practices that you wouldn't otherwise think about. So the church is free for all sorts of things. It's, it's free to witness to reality mm-hmm. rather than to try to create reality. Um, yeah. To witness to the Lord of history rather than trying to control the outcomes of history. It's free to give itself away. Right? There's no longer a need for cultural defensiveness, no us versus them antagonism, no culture wars, right? Um, that, that, that The logic of, the, of cultural competition has been eliminated by the reality of, of reconciliation. The church is free to cross borders and cross boundaries that have been erected within the world and, in fact, lives into its identity when it does so. Right? The church doesn't have to create or manufacture or protect its identity. In fact, the church receives its identity as a gift precisely as it follows Christ into the heart of the world. Uh, so it sort of reframes what it means to be the church in the world in really powerful ways. And then from this, again, I think follow practices of faithful reading. Um, so the fundamental hermeneutical question becomes, how do we embody reality in the world today? Or he might say, Bonhoeffer might say, uh, who is Jesus Christ for us today? So the church, I think, lives and moves as it continuously asks this question. That question that comes up famously in his prison writings, who is Jesus Christ really for us? I think that's at the core of why the church reads the Bible. Like, if, if it didn't need to ask that question, it wouldn't need to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. If Christ, like, were to settle, or if we were to have the gospel objectified and, and at hand, like we, we wouldn't need to read anymore. We'd have the answer. We'd have it right there. But because Christ is on the move, because the, the reality of the world's reconciliation is not fully manifest, there's always that question that needs to be asked, which means then, it means a lot of things, but it means that faithful reading is a continual and ongoing process, yeah. something you do ever anew. It means that patience um, becomes a hermeneutical category. Bonhoeffer says that, I think this is in ethics, he says that, he says that ideologues, those who are, um, are committed to their ideology, never have to grapple with uncertainty because they have, they have answers immediately at hand, right? Um, just watch the news or go online and you'll see exactly what he means, mm-hmm. right? But if you follow a living Lord, then you must, you're you willing to at least admit that understanding is a process and that it takes time. So it brings, it brings patience into the equation. Uh, it's intercultural, right? Our capacity for, dis- for discerning and knowing Christ is heightened as we cross these boundaries that have been erected, right? So which means that be- being located, being in a place encounter with others there becomes valuable for learning to see God and see the Bible rightly, right? So and there's plenty of examples in Bonhoeffer's life of how seriously he took that. Most famously, maybe uh, Harlem, Abyssinian Baptist, like it's that actual encounter with the black church. He didn't, not, not reading black theology from the library union, mm-hmm. but actually encountering the black church on the ground uh, expanded his theological imagination. He was so committed to this belief 
that as we cross borders, our, our imaginations were that he, that he was almost willing to give up several months to go to India to be with Gandhi, right? Mm-hmm. Not a Christian, because um, he knew he could, he, could, he could encounter Christ even there. Yeah. Um, so I, I take that, that, that practice of being in the world, that practice of being located, that practice of actual intercultural encounter as being actually a, a hermeneutical practice, a hermeneutical virtue. Wow. I think uh, uh, probably the best compliment I can give you about this book is it genuinely made me want to read my Bible more because I think it just does such a good job of, uh, I think you do a really good job of making the relationship, like the life of faith as active and dynamic in relating to Christ. That's great. I, I, I appreciate that compliment, Corey. Most people tell me it's too abstract and doesn't make sense. So really? the, f- the fact that it propels you to read the Bible more, I'll, I'll take I'll take that as a win. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I like that. I well, finished it and I was immediately like, oh, like yeah, I, I, I mean, want it, to be addressed. I, I find it to be freeing. Yeah, we, the the whole logic of of policing interpretation. Uh, so it, it, if if Christ is living in active, we have to learn to sit. Easily, more, more, more uneasily with with that. We have to be willing to give up some of our desire to control what counts and doesn't count as faithful interpretation. So, like I've, I've actually tried to speak. I at one point I talked about about um, good interpretations. Hmm. I think both the qualifier "good" and the word "interpretation" are problematic. So now I just like to talk about faithful reading. Are we faithfully using this text as a mm-hmm. means of following? And that can look a ton of different ways. Um, it could mean that you do intense historical work with the text. It could mean that you, you use the texts to write poetry or to make a song or to create art or like anything in between. I think all of these, there, there's some debate. I don't, I don't love the idea, the phrase, theological interpretation of scripture. I don't, I don't like use that a ton anymore. There's always some debate on like what actually is it. I just think it's, it's kind of a silly question. It, it, it can look like anything. Mm-hmm. It is whatever we do when we're using the Bible to be drawn along into the way of Jesus. And of course, you have to make claims, you have to adjudicate, you have to say this is right, this is wrong, but those become sort of secondary things that emerge from the process of following, uh, sort, of, sort of reorienting how we how we go about making this, these judgments and these distinctions. But I'm, I'm glad that you are excited to read your Bible. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, so the last question I have for you is um, the last question I have for everyone: um, the old desert island question. So you get one book by Bonhoeffer, one secondary source about his life, theology, anything. Um, which two books are you taking with you on your desert island? Yeah. My, my gut reaction is that if I were stuck with two books on a desert and they were both about Bonhoeffer, I'd be a little upset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he might not be the first person I want to take with yeah. me. Um, I have not listened to all of your episodes yet. I, I will get to them in due course. It's Don't a great worry. podcast. Do your guests commonly say Metaxas? <laughs> really? Do they? No, 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 no. I'm no. thinking like for toilet paper. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or to help you start a fire. Or <laughs> I think. I, I think. For, I, for practical I, purposes, I might. I, I might say metaxis. A I couple can, of them have been close to saying okay. that. So you, I'm you, glad you. You need spare paper that you can just <laughs> discard sometimes. So. I would. I would I take metaxis. Like, Whoa! What? <laughs> this is a surprise. Did you actually have the book with me? I have you it. You do. I, I. I should hide it. Um, I, ha- I have several other biographies as well, but you can't. <laughs> Do you know that he was scheduled to come to Whitworth last spring? That he was yeah. canceled because of. Co- I don't know who was behind that. It must be. It must cost a ton. Yeah. Um, I it think. Very surprising. I think it's been tentatively rescheduled for this coming spring. You know, COVID allowing. You should figure out who's bringing him, and see if you can get him to do like a thirty-minute podcast with you on Bonhoeffer. That would be epic. 
<laughs> I could help you craft some really great questions. Okay. I think that I think I think your Bonhoeffer podcast community of listeners would really appreciate the, the irony of that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, hopefully he doesn't listen to like any other episodes. Um, <laughs> let me assure you that he won't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, he might have an assistant to do it or something. Um, so that would be my practical answer. I mean, I, it's tough to say. I this Bateke's biography says so many details that I find it to be helpful. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about banning that one. I said that last episode because oh, really? I think it's like I, I think I'm probably on 15, 16 or something episodes, and yeah. uh, probably fourteen of them have been yeah, very good. Sorry, but I mean, um, it's well, good. Yeah, it's good. You have one Metaxas answer now. So, but the book by Bonhoeffer, <laughs> um, uh, I think I don't know. I think ethics bears the most rereading theologically mm-hmm. just to unpack it and to untangle what's going on. I think discipleship could bear rereading in like a spiritual devotional sense. So I'd be, I'd be torn between those two, but I guess I probably would, would go with ethics. If you have any book besides Becca, any other thing that you Oh, gosh. Um, I think your listeners would love to know what's your answer to this question. Ooh. You've heard so many answers. You've read a lot of Bonhoeffer. How would you? This. Um... I've I've always said life together for sure. Okay. Um, just so you can lament not having yeah, people around you. <laughs> it's the worst desert island book, but I think it's his yeah. best book. That's my favorite one. Okay. Um, well, the day alone, you have a lot of days alone. Yeah, exactly. I just reread that chapter a bunch. Yeah, it's um, it's the most. I mean, it's it's really short, but I feel like it's the most complete. There's never a moment in life together. Also, where the I'm easiest like, to read in German. Really. I used it when I was learning German. That was my book I read through. Oh, yeah, so awesome. There you go. <laughs> Good to know. don't know German, but I'm glad I know where to start. Yeah, yeah. but reading it, it's the most um, kind of bang for your buck. I never have a point where I'm reading it and I'm thinking like, okay, this part isn't that like interesting to me. Every single page is just like underlined. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, for, for the other book, I would probably, I've always said, um, I really like the Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians. Just because okay. it has both a biography and like a chapter by chapter of um, major concepts in Bonhoeffer's thought. Yeah. So I kind of get a, a little bit there of it. I think that the, the two secondary works that initially were most helpful for me were um, Charles Marsh's book on reclaiming Bonhoeffer and then Clifford Green's book on Bonhoeffer and, and sociality. Those are two guests that I hope to have in the future. <laughs> I got to I gotta reach out to Charles Marsh again. He was. Um, He's on. He's probably harder to book than I am. <laughs> he's yeah. He's uh, uh he was on sabbatical for a year. Okay. So I like yeah. reach out to him, get an assistant. So Charles, if you're listening, <laughs> check your inbox. All right. Well, that will wrap us up. Again, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, the book is called uh, "Reading Scripture as the Church: Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Hermeneutic of Discipleship" by Derek Taylor on Amazon. Anywhere else? Yeah. Great. So. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot, Corey. I appreciate it. <laughs> this episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Bonhoeffer Podcast Patreon. Specifically, thank you to Soren Jensen for signing up for the Patreon. If you would like to join Soren and begin supporting the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash bonhoefferpod for more information. There's a few different options for signing up to support and would love to have you help us continue to make this podcast keep running. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and as always, thanks for listening.